So this is John King, John Malcolm King, and it's May 2020, and he's just going to read a little bit of memoirs he wrote how long ago? 2007, I think. 2007, so that's 13 years ago. Hmm. I count myself privileged to have been raised in the World War II era when many others did not enjoy the security of a happy and disciplined home as I did. My parents were neither rich nor poor, but lived contentedly and in a godly manner with the compassion for the underprivileged. I was never overindulged, nor did I lack the basic necessities of life. The content of what I have within, oh sorry, the content of what I have written is only a collection of memories. Some are good, others are not. Some are serious, others are funny. They are just snippets of my childhood days. Many of them my own children would not be aware of. I trust that for them as well as for my grandchildren. There is enjoyment and some instruction. Early memories, 135 Powell Street, Grafton. 1940 to 1949, born in an hour. June the 29th, 1938. I moved in uh, we moved to Grafton. Dad became known as a Bible badger, which in turn led to taunts directed to him through us children, such as Bible Basher King put him in the dunny and pulled the string. <laughs> However, my father was generally well respected, had a genuine Christian faith with strong convictions, and my mother also a Christian had a gentle, caring nature and a simple faith that clearly showed in all of her life. Well, Grafton, Town's, Grafton Town holds for me a few pleasant memories, uh, but by and large I remember it as a, a place full of battlers who spent many hours in the pubs and many hours at the dogs or race scores. It was predominantly a Roman Catholic town with many business owners and council, city councillors of that religion. Anglin, Anglicans were of the high church variety. Among the other mainstream denominations, there was a strong contingent of Baptists and a smattering of Calvinistic Free Presbyterians, many of whom lived on farms. My father was an elder in the Free Church and strongly supported the Protestant Lodge, the Temperance Society and the Lord's Day Observance Society. His public stand on biblical issues, supported by his many articles published in the local newspaper examiner, earned him the reputation already mentioned. Well, on occasions my father visited the local Rathgo 
children's home. I went with him. These children were orphaned or in some way rendered homeless. I recall my parents taking a girl from Rathgar into our home to assist mother. Bertha was her name. We took her to Woolai on holiday one year. A shy, quiet girl. I think she was part Aboriginal. My father took an interest in the Aborigines, mainly to evangelise them. He had a heart for them because they were ostracised from the mainstream and seen as second-rate citizens. They were in the main confined to missions where they were housed and given government support. They were not given a vote and never involved in local government or given leading roles. There were a few exceptions. Mr Carter was part Aboriginal and worked on the railway. Married to a Red Indian wife, I remember. Uh, Mr Robinson was a backtracker, I worked for the police, whom I often saw on a well-groomed horse with shiny buckles. And I learnt recently he had a number of wives. <laughs> yes. But he, he, uh, he was a Christian man, which um, I, I'm a little bit doubtful about, but still I'm no, I'm no man's judge. And my father knew him pretty well. My earliest memories were those when home with my mother. My brother and sister were both at school and I spent most hours playing around, as most kids do, watching mother and listening in on any, any conversations with the local grocer, the baker, the iceman, who all called to deliver their goods to the door. And, of course, conversations with the next-door neighbour. The grocer made a weekly call and would write down an order on a slab of packing case using an indelible pencil, which he frequently dabbed on his tongue to make it right. Groceries in those days were hauled around the streets with horse and cart and delivered door to door. Light petrol-driven trucks replaced horse and cart soon after the war. Bread and milk were delivered daily. Bread was either white or whole, meal brown, delivered with a, uh, a covered hand, oh yes, delivered from a covered hand hell basket. My mother was very health conscious, so we had wholemeal bread exclusively. White bread was for those poor, unfortunate, patient-looking kids down the road. Milk was full cream only, not pasteurised and homogenised, and it came to the door delivered from a pint or quart container with a flip-top lid into a jug or billy. We had an eye, je- uh, sorry, we had an ice chest to which the ice man delivered a block of ice weekly. I think it cost one shilling. The ice kept perishables from going off. 
yes. A for, uh, it was a forerunner to the refrigerator. The kitchen cabinet was a freestanding thing with a cutlery drawer, a drawer for serviettes, plus bits and pieces, which I think our daughter Elizabeth has inherited. <laughs> uh, it had a cabinet for storing plates and bowls, a lower cabinet for storing pots and pans, and a section called a meat safe where salted meat or corned beef could protect it from blowflies. It had a, a dent in the lower door caused by my mother throwing a shoe at my sister Frances <laughs> on one occasion. <laughs> Our house did not have screen doors or windows. Blows were, were around all year and often buzzing around in the kitchen looking for opportunity to blow any meat on the table. One had to vigilantly wave a tea towel around or swat them with it if one got the opportunity. Flies, mosquitoes, moths of all types could enter or exit the house. The ceilings and light shades were covered with fly dung. Everybody lived in these conditions. The rich were the exceptions. Their home usually had a heavy type of fly gauze fitted. I know. I don't know whether the cabinet, the dresser at our place is the actual one, but I'm assuming it's like the one that your mum had. Yeah. The rich were exceptions, yeah. Their homes usually had a heavy type of fly gauze fitted. Yeah, that's where we finished off last time. Yeah. So if you go from I was quite oblivious. I was quite oblivious to the... Early war, sorry, I'll start again. That's right. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> Go. I was quite oblivious to the early war years. However, I recall my mother having a conversation with a neighbour whose comment about the war was, look what they did to Darwin. I was four years of age then. I knew that there was some sort of conflict Trenches about six feet deep were dug in school playgrounds and in the backyards of most homes to serve as air raid shelters. There was fear of Japanese air attack. Similar but larger trenches were dug in school playground areas. I wondered at the time what would be the outcome if a bomb landed in the trench and I was there. I thought it was much safer to be under a roof. Well, Dad had a beautiful vegetable garden and this was supposed to be an aid to the war. However, it did provide the family and others with good variety, a good variety of greens. A brick was placed in the toilet system to reduce the amount of flush water and this was said to be another aid. The war, year, the war years were lean years. Food, clothing and most household needs were in short supply. However, we never starved, nor did we lack the necessities of life. Rich people were few, the poor were many. There was a class divide between the rich and the poor, the business owners and the workers, 
Lebanese or Syrian people who owned a clothing business lived opposite us, and we never spoke. The only occasion there was some communication um, where, was when I played a magnificent hook, hook shot in a cricket game on the street. <laughs> the ball went straight through their front window and into their living room. Well, the owner of the local cordial factory, who lived nearby, seemed very aloof also. By the way, you know, Dad did <laughs> uh, communicate with those Lebanese people. I remember he had to cough up and pay for the repairs. Oh. Yeah. yeah. These people, anyway, um, talking about the uh, local cordial factory owner, these people lived in houses with lead-like glass windows and doors. Most people were housed in fairly plain fibro or weatherboard cottages. We leased a house owned by uh, Mrs Miller, and Mr Miller collected the rent. He came around on a weekly basis, and I still remember him collecting the rent. It was two pounds a week. Well, we leased the house... Oh, sorry. Uh, my father earned a relatively good salary being a teacher and university graduate. Um, he was able to support the family, pay rent, it's two quid a week, pay for casual domestic help when the family grew in number and give a tithe of his income to the church, support the China Inland Mission and the Aboriginal Inland Mission now known as the Australian Indigenous Mission. He was also able to provide a lengthy holiday for the family at Woolai for six weeks over the Christmas vacation. Of course, my father was never called up to do any military duty. I think that if you were a teacher, you were exempt because you were needed on the home front. Anyway... Um, uh, some floods were, oh, sorry, not floods, some foods were rationed in the war years and for some time after. The government provided families with booklets of food comment, comment, sorry, they were food coupons. They looked like stamps. I recall being sent off regularly to the local corner shop for butter and other essentials. The coupons had to be metered out. Nothing was wasted. Nothing was used in excess. Packaging was kept to a minimum. Foods like rice and sugar were bought loose, like mm, bulk. Like had to scoop it. Yeah. Nobody around Grafton was fat. <laughs> well, there might have been a few exceptions. Oh, yeah, except a few who probably had some genetic condition and couldn't help but be that way. Oh, yeah, we have to say that. <laughs> Some business owners had a fair paunch, but that was probably due to excessive drinking. Yeah, the place was full of drunks. <laughs> there was so much, you know, it was a Roman Catholic town, but Irish Roman, Roman Catholic. And I think that's why there's a lot of... I was going to say the epitome of drunks, isn't it? Irish yeah, Roman Catholic. Irish Roman. They, yeah, they knew how to drink. And they, they loved their horses, you know, racehorses. Mm. So it was a big racehorse town. I think it still is, Grafton. 
Well, breakfast for us consisted of rolled oats, toast and cocoa. Cocoa drink. All, if the rolled oats got burnt in the, on the fuel stove, it was horrible. Dad applied the butter to the bread, which we learnt to catch as it came floating through the air from the head of the table where he sat. The butter lasted longer with him in charge. For the main meal of the day, we, we regularly ate tripe, oh, lamb's tongue or sheep's brains. In winter, we had lots of oxtail soup with brown bread. Well, that was okay, but the tripe was shocking. Mum served it up with a white sauce, slippery stuff. He had a job to pick it up with a fork, let alone swallow it. You know, it just made you vomit. <laughs> oh, yeah, it used to slip down your throat, you see, and slip back up again. However, uh, we did have a weekend roast or leg of lamb with baked potatoes, pumpkins, pumpkin, greens and plenty of gravy. Well, that was a pretty good meal. And I think we used to have the, uh, you know, the leftovers of the lamb for Sunday lunch. Uh, the old chooks that had given up laying eventually got to the table. Oh, what a privilege. <laughs> they were all right. If they were boiled up long enough, uh, often I saw a poor old chook with his head cut off, hanging up to drain the blood. Dad would put it in boiling water, pluck it and then gut it, and pigeons were in plentiful supply and had become pests at the local high school where my father taught. On occasions they were trapped and brought home for us to eat. Well, my father lost interest in this cost-saving measure because of the difficulties that he encountered in processing pigeons. He attempted to apply the same method of decapitation to the pigeons as he did to the chooks. Well, the pigeons apparently are smart. <laughs> pigeons apparently are smarter than chooks. They were able in an instant to withdraw their heads from the chop, <laughs> withdraw their heads from the chopping block, <laughs> as the axe was about to strike. <laughs> well, after several failed attempts, <laughs> that I observed with interest, <laughs> my father retreated to the garage with the pigeons, closed the doors, and he proceeded to wring their necks. Oh dear. <laughs> I could see him going, I could see him through the cracks in the door. <laughs> Obviously, I was one of the most observant people yeah, I ever lived. Yeah. Well, celebrations following the Japanese surrender in 1945 were over the top. Uh, that would have been September, about, wasn't it, when the Japs surrendered? It was the first time. I'd seen people go really wild. The, the kids were let out of school early. We got home, got home early. Hmm. In 45, where was I? I was saying, well, I, I would have been at school. Seven. Yeah, we got a half-day holiday. I, as soon as the uh, surrender was announced, yeah, I think we, were, we packed up and were sent home. Hmm. Well, anyway, um, 
rural at Laos school early, or bike riders trail a string of empty cans along the street. They bumped and rattle along, creating a terrible din. And I still remember that they got all these, you know, because uh, a lot of the food was processed food in tins mm. during the war, and you wanted peaches and, and plums or anything like that, you always bought tins of them. And all these empty tins uh, were strung together by people who had bikes and so on and cars, and they just dragged them on the road behind them. Yeah, anyway, the talk about the noise, I still remember they bumped and rattled along, making a terrible din, people were shouting and waving flags. There was a general madness and excitement. I've never seen anything like it since. Well, some days after this, a huge Lancaster bomber flew over our school. I could see the faces of the airmen. The trenches at school were filled in by a big bulldozer and life returned to normal and the men came home from the war. I can remember the one serviceman only. His name was Mr Dobby. Uh, his, his son, Don, was my best friend in primary school. He was a smart boy too, actually. He used to help me do my homework. <laughs> but um, his father came home from the war and went into a shoe shop. Okay. Yeah, with uh, another guy from the war. Yeah. It became quite a good business in Grafton. Uh, but often wondered, you know, how, how those men, you know, were affected by the war because we never thought about that at the time. But, yeah. All right, infants and primary schools were segregated. Boys with girls, girls with girls. So I say boys with boys, girls with girls. Roman Catholics went to the Roman Catholic school. Protestants went to the public school. There were some exceptions, but families generally stuck to their own religious colour. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, if you chose a dentist, you'd find out whether he was a Roman Catholic first or not. If you're Roman Catholic, you go elsewhere. <laughs> well, oh yeah, it was very much like that then. That was back in the 1940s. Mm. Well, there didn't appear to be much animosity, not at a public level anyway. I think the orange and green just avoided each other. We did. Some enmity was evident between children of different faiths, particularly the way home from school. Just about every kid walked. There were no buses. Some older kids with their head bikes. I recall punching a oh dear. I recall punching a Catholic kid in the nose, making it bleed. I was severely reprimanded by his big brother. I thought he was going to kill me. But one of my sisters, one of my sisters who obviously will remain nameless. Was known to Greek Catholics from a safe distance with the ditty Catholic whackers stink like crackers sitting on logs eating maggots out of frogs. Well, on, the, on reporting to my mother what I thought was a victory over the Catholic kid I punched, I was told never to fight. 
Uh, this left me at that time with no recourse other than to take a non-retaliatory approach when in conflict. Yeah, I don't know how true that was. I guess there was some truth. For this reason, and maybe because I couldn't get up enough guts to have a go anyway, <laughs> yeah, I never resorted to fighting, to fist fighting, but preferred to take the path of conciliatory action and keep the peace at all costs. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know what sort of a peacemaker I was. I don't think it would be a very good one. I always, I have always, to this day, taken the path of pouring oil on troubled waters rather than inflame conflict. I don't like it. Ironically, I list boxing as my number one sport, my number one sport, spectator sport. Well, next to that is the speedway. I'm, al I'm alive now because I've never been actively engaged in either of these. Yeah. There you go, right. Andrew. Right. That'll do so. That's good. Mm -hmm. That was 15 mm -hmm. minutes of great. We're good to go. My school performances were never outstanding. However, a mediocre would be best to describe them. I do recall, however, coming second in my third class half yearly test. My friend John Robinson came first. Uh, this performance was not repeated in later years. Class 4A was an interesting experience. Tom Morris was our teacher. He was the uncle of Arthur Morris, the test cricketer. Test cricket became part of the, the classroom culture. Tom had one, one ear on the cricket when the tests were on and the other ear on the class. He was the chief disciplinarian in the primary school. I reckon his use of the cane breaks all records. Late comers to school were sent to Tom and he duly carried out the task of punishment. Standard treatment was one good one in the hand, struck about an inch from the tip of the fingers. If you pulled your hand away, uh, then you would get an extra one for good measure. Some kids were tough and could handle the pain. Others would get a bit teary before, as well as after the treatment. It was a bit of a test to see if you were a, a man or not. Well, the girls never got the cane. I never really knew what went on in the girls' school. I guess they received other forms of harsh treatment, like standing in the corner for ages with their backs to the class. Headmistresses looked and dressed like Queen Victoria and were pretty strict in those days. Tom had what he called the bow and arrow shot, or bow and arrow treatment. Uh, this method of discipline was employed, for instance, if the class performed poorly in a test, Tom would remain seated for the task. We all had to line up and receive one across the hand from a thinner and lighter cane, and he possessed several of these canes. They tended to break because they were bent back in the shape of a circle and then released. The impact was rather a nasty sting. We all returned to our seats when the operation was over. I don't remember seeing anyone laughing. <laughs> At least one no one was crying. I recall on several occasions seeing a cane or two bound up with insulating tape. One student was smart enough to succeed in a clandestine operation to cut Tom's canes in half. <laughs> How that kid got into the cane press, one will never know. Anyway, he gave us all a 
great deal of pleasure and some sense of justice. On occasion, some poor kid would be sent to Tom for the cuts during class time. To assist in the procedure, Tom got us all to sing this song. Tra-la-la-la, sing along with me. Tra-la-la-la, it's easy as ABC. When you get to the middle of it, don't forget the twiddly bit. Don't go home and sing it in your sleep, but sing just where you are. One, two, three, now all together with me. Tra-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Now, <laughs> while, while all this was going on, the poor victim was getting the cane while standing out in the front of the class. And on the word twiddly being sung, upon command and at the top of our lungs, the cane would come down with force upon the hand. Uh, to add to the humiliation, the kid would have to stand there until, with Tom conducting, we had finished the song. It provided some entertainment, but no one was laughing. <laughs> For serious crimes at school, one got six of the best from Tom. The number of strokes one got depended on the severity of the crime. Well, now and again, Tom would give us a recital on his mouth organ. He could play it pretty well, but I don't know how many times I heard the tune Two Little Girls in Blue. And apart from, I don't know whether it was Two Little Girls in Blue Land. Anyway, it was Two Little Girls in Blue. Blue Lad, was it? Two Little Girls in Blue Lad. Hmm. Right. Well, apart from community singing, this was a music lesson for the week. <laughs> Tom, Tom would usually sit at his table out the front of the class with his legs astride. Oh, no. From our desk level, it was possible and usually unavoidable to look straight under the table at Tom's bulging crutch. <laughs> oh, dear. It made me wonder... What he kept in his trousers. <laughs> <laughs> it was massive. <laughs> oh, speaking of that, <laughs> he had a habit of instructing any kid who wanted to go to the toilet in class time to tie a bit of string around it. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. In fact, one kid did, do that, did just that for, for fun. <laughs> and he walked around the school one day with the string hanging down his leg. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. He's always cast clowns, isn't he? Oh, dear. I love it. Well, I don't know. I think a few kids try to pull it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved athletics. The school had the usual four houses. Lippman, Lobbin, Nataris and Schaefer. The names derived from prominent businessmen in the town, or historical anyway. I was in Nataris. I was in Nataris. I represented the school in high jumping in the North Coast Combined Schools Carnival when I was in um, fourth class. I came last on the day. I could jump. I could jump three feet ten and a half inches, 
but not on the all-important day. I could run well in the 100-yard race, but always got beaten to first place by uh, Alan Beasley. The annual school athletics race, sorry, the annual school athletics day was great. In fourth class, Tom Morris gave me the job of fetching his bike in the day when it was time to go home. What, a, what an opportunity that was. I learned to ride a bike at this stage and I took this as a chance to ride Tom's. The problem was that Tom decided, Tom decided to meet me halfway. <laughs> I didn't know that. Consequently, as I pushed as fast as I could, about to swing my, about to swing my right leg over the seat for a good ride, <laughs> I almost ran Tom down. <laughs> I could never work out why he didn't line me up for the usual discipline the following day. Uh, maybe he did have some heart and a sense of humour. Yeah, I think when I gave him the bike, he said, oh, good boy, thanks. <laughs> I didn't expect that. All right. I always got a good leading role in school plays. I liked being out front, showing off with my loud voice. I could sing quite well, and maybe that was the only reason I was chosen. I doubt that it was my acting ability. I remember being the narrator in a play. I had to sing my part. It went like this. Who killed Cock Robin? And the answer then again came in song. I said the sparrow with my bow and arrow. I killed Cock Robin. And then under my direction the chorus chimed in. All the birds of the air fell a-sighing and a-sobbing when they heard of the death of poor Cock Robin, and so on. And I can't remember what happened to the sparrow, but I'm sure the play would never be performed in schools today. My most notable performance of some time later in a play, in a play called Aunt Deborah. And I was Aunt Deborah. The problem was that I was required to speak in a high-pitched female voice for the entire play. Now, this I did admirably until my wig fell off <laughs> and landed at the foot of the stage. The audience, which, by the way, was the parents on a night. It was a night play, night show. This I did admirably until the wig fell off and the audience started roaring with laughter and I, in an embarrassed state, didn't know what to do. I just stood there looking stupid and then ordered a girl in the cast using my normal voice to pick up the wig and put it back on. And this again sent the audience into hysterics. It was all of a disaster, but at least the audience enjoyed themselves. The recess and lunch breaks at school were largely taken up playing games or some kind of sport. There was no set time for eating. We just ate on the run. Some kids brought very little food to school anyway, and often a kid would ask me for my apple core. There were a lot of poor kids in the school, actually, mm. and they weren't well-dressed and never washed very well. 
Anyway, I remember this one fellow used to ask me for my apple core. I like to be a wicket keeper. I got picked by Ron Lambert to be in his team to play at weekends. Marbles or dibs was a game that was played in the dirt. There were different kinds of marbles, or tours as we call them. There were agates and blood alleys and connies and others, and some were quite rare and highly valued. A blood alley, for instance, could be worth a dozen agates, even though it may have had chips and, you know, looked pretty worn. Some kids played for keeps, but I thought that was too risky. I saw a kid lose a whole bag of marbles one day, and he didn't seem to care. He just threw the bag up in the air. (laughs) I thought marbles to be too valuable for that to happen, and I only played for fun. Jacks was a game played using knuckle bones from sheep. Um, The idea of the game was to toss a number of knuckle bones into the air and catch them, or as many as possible, in the back of the hand. One was doing well to catch five. Plastic knuckle buckles were available, sorry, plastic knuckle bones were available later in the shops, but these were not the genuine article and thought to be a form of cheating. We come Athletics Carnival time, we set up high jumps in the playground. Don Dobby and I had a theory that we could jump a lot better if we took a teaspoon of sugar beforehand. It was supposed to give extra energy. We tested this theory by setting up high jumps in Don's backyard. After several attempts, we failed to prove the theory <laughs> and then retreated to our cubby house where we had running water and other facilities considered useful to nine-year-old boys. Well, the most prestigious job in fourth class was to be the official school bell ringer. I volunteered for the job. Some other kids also volunteered. There had to be a contest to see who was the best. I had cunningly got in a piece of practice after school when everybody had gone home. I remember watching and listening to the other contenders as they went through their trials on the bell. They were hopeless. <laughs> I, got, I got the job. The only paid job was to be the garbage boy. There were no school janitors in those days. You got to collect lots of paper and have a roaring fire in the incinerator on Fridays. I got one penny a week for that from Tom. Many streets in Grafton were lined with jacaranda trees. One street in particular had a lovely avenue of them. Their blossoms around October were spectacular and totally covered the road like a mauve carpet. We used to pick them and blow them up till they burst. The schools were involved in the annual jacaranda festival. We all tripped off to the local showground for the celebration. The girls danced the maypole, even though it was October in Grafton. Being thoroughly British, the name maypole remained. The boys played a fairly lifeless role on the day. I recall assembling in such a way as to form some shape on the ground. I don't remember any shape in particular, but probably like a tree with with the colourful girls forming the blossoms as they danced around the maypoles. Yeah, so we just sort of were the branches. 
leaves and so on. I don't remember any shape of Oh, yes. This dance consisted of girls in groups dancing clockwise. Okay, sorry. This movement resulted in a twisted pattern of ribbons wrapped around the poles. With this complete, the girls reversed the procedure by dancing in an anti-clockwise direction, thus undoing the pattern of ribbons around the pole. The uh, boys just stood and looked. I think they tried to incorporate the boys with the girls in the dance sometime later, but from my viewpoint, this was a total failure. You want to have a break? Yeah, might do, eh? At home, I was often in some sort of strife. I received a fair and sometimes an excessive measure of the waddy. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the ass, and a rod for the fool's back. That was the motto. It came from the book of Proverbs. Uh, well, this part of scripture was applied heavily. The razor strap or a belt was used frequently. The razor strap was deadly. It was so heavy. The belt could wrap around your body when applied with force and leave a long red mark. Uh, you didn't give any back chat. I didn't get the strap on the back, but I sure got it on the legs and backside, commonly known as the bump. But that was a forbidden word in our house. My mother was soft compared to my father. I can't, I can't remember being struck by her. She may have had a go, but I could duck out of the way and escape into the backyard. Her last words were often, wait till your father gets home. <laughs> and she never raised her voice. Uh, she was a... Um, that was a shameful thing to do. She spoke from the throat with a rush of breath that made you really believe it. When Dad got home, he often had a job to do. Well, maybe this accounts for what he said many years later. I was too busy disciplining my kids to have time to love them. Uh, how sad. However, he believed that the job of discipline had to be done well, and corporal punishment, he believed, was the only way to do it. I remember one exception to that. Nine children was a handful for my mother, particularly when my father went out to midweek meeting at night. Uh, on one such a, such a night, I was making a major complaint to my mother about the fact that I thought there were too many kids in our family. <laughs> I guessed that I was suffering from lack of attention or just plain selfishness. On the night, my mother took no action, but she certainly did when my father got home. At seven o'clock the next morning, I was suddenly awakened by my father's words. You were saying there are too many children in this house? Well, you are the first to go. <laughs> I remember that wake-up call more than any other. I strongly objected and demanded with tears my right to stay. My father really scared me. I thought that I was off to the local orphanage, never to return. There was an, an, uh, there was an old adage that said ministers, had, ministers used to whip their horses and kids. I think in many cases it was true and it probably set the standard for Dad and most fathers of that era. In my experience, not all ministers of the church were harsh, but severe punishment was certainly part of pre- and post-war culture. Another legacy of colonial days. If anyone did wrong, then one had to take the full responsibility for it. No allowances were made for psychological disorders and the like. There were a few ill-disciplined kids around, 
One could always pick them by their bad language. The, language, the lifestyle of their parents was pretty awful too, drunken and disorderly. I always thought that they would have to be Roman Catholic to behave in this way. <laughs> That's how biased I was. Their kids were always in strife at school, had bad haircuts, scrappy clothes, and were habitual truants. Oh dear. Well, Grafton was built on a floodplain, and in the 1940s, floods inundated the business centre and low-lying areas, particularly in South Grafton, which we call Dogtown. However, due to the level terrain, bike riding was convenient and popular. My mother regularly rode her bike to go shopping, bringing many things home tied to the rack behind the seat. My father preferred to walk to school. I think this gave time for APC tablets to have the desired effect on the science headaches that constantly bothered him. With head covered, he was always sniffing at home over pots of hot water with fryers balsam at it. He had trouble sleeping if there was too much light. To solve the problem, he would cover his face when lying down with a piece of black velvet. Winston Churchill did the same. Maybe he knew that. He did ride his bike on longer journeys, but one of which seemed like miles to me when he doubled me to visit Mr Carter, the Aboriginal man mentioned earlier. He was a Christian who worked on the railway as a fettler and he lived on the outskirts of the town. He had what we call a red Indian wife. She had a scary look with long black hair, swept back and plaited. It was at these times my father, when in a jovial mood, would introduce me to my future occupation, as he called it. Outside the Carter home, there was an abandoned horse-driven night cart, used at one time to collect night soil. I soon learnt that colloquially, this term was dunny cart, and poo, there were some other unmentionable terms. Anyway, my father would, with delight, place me beside him on the driver's seat, and with imagination, driving reins in his hands, and swaying from side to side, start galloping furiously. At this point, he would hand over the reins to me. I was to copy his antics, but I didn't enjoy this sense of humour and didn't cooperate. I couldn't wait to get off the smelly thing. Well, fortunately, Grafton did have a sewerage system in the 1940s. Powell Street did anyway, where we lived. However, I recall seeing a council abbey wagon, an updated version of the dunny cart, dunny cart operating in some parts of the town. A joke. What is four wheels and flies? Has its roots going back a long way. Draft horses were the main source of pulling power for council vehicles. However, I recall some petrol-powered trucks being used on roadworks. Drains and holes were dug using pick and shovel. Trucks were loaded with dirt and gravel using a primitive type of handheld scoop attached to a winch and a cable. Most roads in Grafton were sealed with bitumen, which in the scorching heat of the summer melted to the extent that it was impossible to avoid getting tar and gravel sticking to your bare feet. Shoes were worn only on sun shoes sorry, shoes were worn only on Sundays to church and to school when one attained high school age. My father had a full time job uh, replacing chromite on the soles of our shoes. 
he placed a shoe over cast iron last to do the job. Many a time when running on the road barefoot, I would skin my longest toes to the extent that they never recovered their original length. I note that I have passed on, <laughs> I have passed on the relevant genes to one of my children who has failed to give her toes the appropriate treatment to reduce their length. <laughs> That's for you, Rebecca. Yeah. Dusty feet and dirty clothes were the order of the day for pretty well all boys. We played cricket in the dirt or out in the street just about every day after school and on Saturdays. The girls, most of whom were clean and tidy, played hopscotch or skipped on the footpaths. They never got involved in the boys' games. Tomboys were frowned upon. In our estimate, they were just not proper girls. Red Rover, Crossover, When You Catch and Bowl Them Over was a good game in winter for boys. We chose to play this game on someone's nicely mown grass at the front of their house. Lawns were not a common sight, just mown grass. The people, most people, had push mowers. If not, a scythe was used to control grass and weeds around the house. For Grafton was a horse town. The Grafton Cup featured prominently on our calendar. We constantly had to avoid poo. The town seemed to be full of horses as well as greyhound dogs. And we had weekends, horses, some looking very smart, and muzzled dogs would be led along Powell Street in front of our house to the racetracks, dropping manure and dung everywhere. It was never picked up, but left to the elements to break down or for vehicles to scatter. This was the environment we all lived with. Apart from the personal daily quick washing of our legs and feet under a tap to get rid of paspalum, ergot and dirt, we remained pretty smelly for most of the time. The weekly bath on Saturday evening was a preparation for Sabbath school and church the next day. Hot water was available through a gas heater that tended to let out a big bang from time to time. One lot of bath water had to be used repeatedly, lest the cost of heating be excessive. The girls got the best water, so I would have to bath in the lukewarm, soupy stuff. Uh, that was the norm, and no one ever thought to complain. Patches on our clothes were a common sight. If adults didn't have a suit, then you knew they couldn't afford one. My mother washed the empty roll of oats bags, and they were made of calico and were clearly labelled in blueprint. When a number of bags were accumulated, she would cut out the calico and stitch up panties for the girls. She had a singer sewing machine operated with a treadle. The girls at times, uh, sorry, the girls were at times a moving and startling advertisement for Uncle Toby's rolled oats. Firewood was a valuable resource at Grafton. My father once hired the local carrier to collect a supply of logs from out of town. It made a pile above the height of the paling fence in our backyard. It was there for ages. My father constructed my father's construction skills were limited, but he managed to make up a crude holder for mounting the logs. He bought a massively big handsaw, which effectively cut the firewood into usable pieces on that structure which was called a saw horse. 
I recall seeing him sweating and sawing for hours, preparing the wood for use in the kitchen stove and laundry copper. If ever a chainsaw was needed, it was then. Incidentally, he cut the tips off two of his fingers on the left hand while chopping wood with an axe. Uh, that happened in Nara days when, as a toddler, I happened to be standing near the chopping block. He was apparently watching me and not paying close enough attention to the position of his left hand. <laughs> in springtime, the magpies that nested in camphor laurel trees near our home were a constant menace. One could never go anywhere without being bombarded from above. The Maggies were particularly protective of the young, and kids were a potential threat to them. I remember being attacked many times, and one occasion received a badly lacerated scalp. I learnt after a while to carry a weapon in the form of a cricket stunt or a long stick. When carried above my, uh, when carried above head height, it was quite effective in deferring, in deterring them from striking. To add to the menace, a neighbour nearby kept a magpie as a pet. It was a spiteful bird and took the opportunity to attack from ground level any time anyone that passed by. Some school kids were good tree climbers and uh, they did a lot of bird nesting on the way home from school and this may have exacerbated the problem. What's bird nesting? Oh, they'd climb the trees uh, to get the, the nests. To pinch the eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. Yeah, they they blow them, they pierce a hole on both ends of the eggs and blow the innards out. Right. So that the eggs wouldn't rot. Nothing would be wrong with the girls' league. Uh, no. Well, I belong to the girl of bird lovers. In fourth class, I signed up for it. All right. And I think a few of the bird lovers were probably in it too. Yeah. I don't think it really got... Yeah, I remember doing, I think that maybe that was a, a move to try to stop kids doing that because a lot of them used to climb trees, particularly those big jacarandas. All right, you want me to read one more paragraph? Yeah, maybe one more. The washing of linen and clothes was a weekly event and an arduous task in our house. Our family had grown to eight in number by 1946 and were more children to come. Washing at this point was a mammoth job and the need to employ a washerwoman and an ironing ironing lady were necessary. Washing was an all-day event. I recall a poor woman who did the work. Her name was Mrs Ross. First, a fire had to be lit under the copper to fill the water. When the water reached the boiling stage, the linen sheets and other whites were dropped in and prodded about with a stick that looked like a broom handle cut in half. Purcell or Rinso was used as a cleaning agent. Everything was boiled for ages, then lifted from the copper with a stick and placed in rinsing water in a concrete tub. Rinsing blue was added to the water. This blue was to give the washing a cleaner and brighter appearance. However, I remember being more useful in curing bee stings. The next procedure was to wring out by hand and throw the washing into a galvanised steel tub. It was then hung out to dry, secured with wooden pegs to uh, clothes lines that ran the full width of the backyard. These lines were raised with long wooden saplings that served as, served as props. I recall Mrs Ross 
and at a later time, a daughter, Mrs. Miller, with terrible scowls in their faces, when load after load of dirty washing was delivered to the laundry. Wynna Bailey and Flora Shaw came to help out on occasions. I think Flora was related to us. I think she might have been related to the kids, Flora Shaw. They were lovely Christian women who lived together and gave assistance when mother was in Runnymede Hospital having another baby. There you go. Right. That was pretty good. Indicated earlier, drunkenness was part of everyday life for many in Crafton. It was a vice that was rarely concealed in those days among what was known as the working class. Men as drunk as fools were often seen lining up at a pub bar, pushing and shoving like bad school kids getting on a bus. Drunken brawls could be heard into the early hours of the morning, particularly at weekends. Not much has changed. Oh, one of our near neighbours, a council worker, would arrive home drunk every Friday afternoon and begin shouting at his wife in a terrible rage. He rode a bicycle, but usually walked it home because it would have been impossible in his condition for him to ride it. I remember him, when attempting to ride, veering all over the road and ending up in the gutter with a bike on top of him. <laughs> he, he couldn't even walk the bike straight and upon failing it and, and upon falling over it from time to time would command the bike in a loud voice to go straight. Another fellow managed to ride home drunk but couldn't make the hill just outside his place. So he'd just fall off on the ground, onto the ground, pick himself up and stumble through the front gate. That was Langham's over the road. Wow. And the other fellow I talked about was a fellow by him, Daly. The first fellow's wife was forced to take the brunt of his drunkenness and surely at, at one time would have cleared out. But in those days, married women depended on their husbands and there was no places of refuge anyway. I recall this fellow calling out obscenities and asking his wife for sexual favours whilst in the lavatory outside the home. It was disgraceful stuff, and I put it on the I put it on the record simply to show what life at its lowest can be like. Mm. I'm sure that there is worse and there was. Fortunately, I was spared from seeing it in my early days. At other times, I heard crockery smashing in this man's kitchen as he raged around the, like a maniac. What misery that poor woman had to endure. Their son would visit on occasions and literally begin fighting with his father. I was most curious when this happened and would sneak over and see them wrestling on the double bed. I assumed he was trying to teach his father a lesson. I got caught once looking through the window. It was quite a spectacle. However, I could run fast, so by the time the son had extricated himself from combat, I was safely home. Uh, these early experiences impressed upon me a hate for the abuse of grog. Mm. Women, never drank in, women never drank in public. It was regarded as shameful. They were called 
wardrobe drinkers. I thought that this was a stupid place to drink. <laughs> Such were the problems in society that my father joined the Temperance Society, which was in fact a body that supported teetotalism. They put on a Christmas party every year, and of course we all went. Party games, drinks and lollies, and the Christmas cake too. It was fun, and the biggest party of the year for us. As good as, or better, than your, than your annual Sabbath school picnic. Well, birthdays were quietly celebrated at home, with the usual cake and candles. With nine kids in our family, my mother was always making birthday cakes. I recall celebrating our neighbour, Miss Matty's birthday. She was so excited that we would remember her. I did a few repair jobs around the house for her and made her uh, things like gates for the chook pen. She was a poor lonely soul and quite old. She lived on her own and didn't have any family to look after her. My mother gave her a big rag doll as a gift on one occasion. She felt quite sorry for her and thought the doll would be company for her. Christmas was never celebrated by the Free Church. However, we all had our Christmas stockings out on Christmas Eve and awoke on Christmas Day of presents, popcorns and lollies. I believed in Santa right up to the age of about eight and can remember being devastated when my mother, my brother broke the news to me that it was a big myth. Anyway, some years later, I became the, uh, the official Santa Claus in our home <laughs> and had the serious responsibility of distributing the presents on Christmas Eve. So sucked in, Graham. <laughs> Just joking. Uh, Chinese, garden, Chinese gardens lived on the outskirts of town. They were excellent vegetable growers and worked hard. I was the time sent out to them to buy lettuce and cabbage. I could haul the produce home in my billy cart. The Chinaman would say, one silly thanks, thank you. I think that covered everything. It was one shilling. My billy cart had many uses. It was good for pulling kids around and many times it carted home loads of cow manure. Many times I was sent to a local produce store called the PDS to collect floor wheat for, the dad, for Dad's chooks. We got it for nothing. Mr Bancroft managed the store. He is one of Dad's Christian friends. Billy carts were one thing, but slides were better and far more exciting. Nearby our house ran Alamy Creek. This creek never appeared to flow, except in flood time. Choked with hyacinth, it looked like a big span of vegetation and lilies. It had long, steep, grassy banks in places, very suited to sliding. The trick was to own a good slide. Slides were basically two skids joined together with bits of old fence palings to form a seat at one end and somewhere two at one's feet at the other. A rope attached to the front provided you with something to hang on to. The skids were shaped to give a bow appearance at the front, or a bow, I should say, appearance at the front. If one failed to provide this, it was very likely one's slide upon movement 
at a fast rate would dig into the terrain, catapulting one into the creek. The bottom edges of the skids were tapered to minimise the surface area in contact with the ground. Waxing and polishing the skids was optional, but it was known that such treatment gave one the edge with speed. Sliding became one of the most competitive and enjoyable sports after school hours and in holidays. Kids from 4th, 5th and 6th classes competed. There was no planning. It all just happened, depending on the number of kids and slides that turned up. Girls were not permitted to engage in sliding. They got hurt too easily. <laughs> Besides, there was no first aid facilities. No first aid facilities. They didn't exist in those days. The regular site was a grassy slope of the creek, which had what we call the Devil's Drop at the top. The starting line was above the Devil's Drop. Negotiating the drop was optional. One could opt out and go around, go around it if one failed to have enough guts to go over. Go over it. My excuse was that the Devil's Drop was not good for my slide. <laughs> If one, if one did not go over, it was more likely that one slide, one slide would end up in several pieces and the rider would sustain severe jar, jarring of the spine. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, slides considered to be unsuccessful were dumped in the creek. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of kids decided to make a two-seater it was hopeless. <laughs> the kid, the kid sitting at the back, blamed the kid at the front, <laughs> and vice versa. Oh dear, he got dumped in the creek. <laughs> oh dear, there were really never any winners. We're all just too busy, just managing to stay aboard and get to the bottom of the slope. As far as I know, everyone survived in my time there. It is a wonder that there was not a few necks or limbs broken. Mm. Um, there was a dirt track that uh, passed over the creek at one point. The shortest route from Powell Street to Queen Street was along this track. Oh, right, pardon me. Oh, silly laughing. I end up bailing over a city. Yeah, what did I say? There was, there was a dirt track, yes. The shortest route from Powell, Powell to Queen Street was along this track. We lived in Powell Street and Queensland, uh, Queen Street. Uh, was at right angles, about two or three streets up. Um, starting on the Queen Street side of the creek bank, which was the steepest, it was possible to nearly reach the speed of sound <laughs> by the time we got to the bottom. This gave one enough momentum to cross over the other side of the creek and to get home. Staying, staying upright was a problem. Many a time I found it hard to control the speed wobble, and ended up having a gutter. The construction of flying of kites was very popular. The bigger the kite, 
and the lighter the kite, the better it was. And of course, the design. A bamboo frame was best, bound together with cotton. We attached huge tails to them, which would weave about in the sky. We attached the kites to cord lines. Nylon lines, nylon line wasn't invented then. Some kids would get their kites completely wrong. They could never get them to really fly. They would run like crazy, but their kite would just take a swoop upwards and nosedive into the, into the ground. I lost a kite once. It took off and went for miles, trailing the cord. I found it eventually in a paddock of corn. Uh, chewing gum came in three varieties, pecate, spearmint and juicy fruit. They were made by Wrigley's. I had no money, and like the other kids, we had to find an alternative. Near the horse racing track, there was a huge Morton Bay fig. The trick was to place a neat cut in the bark of the tree with a pocket knife. Over a 24-hour period, the sap of the tree would bleed, producing quite a juicy slab of white congealed gum. It became our chewing gum. It tasted shocking, but at least it made us look cool. <laughs> if one could get some of the genuine Wrigley stuff, it was considered wasteful if, when one finished chewing, it was thrown away. It was all sensible to stick the gum on the back of one's bedhead before going to sleep. It was there for you the next morning. It had its limitations, of course. The accumulation of dirt and dust on the gum spoiled the taste, and if not regularly chewed, it would turn rock hard. All right. Do you want to leave it at that? Or yeah, sure. How I survived the illnesses of Grafton days I will never know. I'm sure the Lord was kind. I escaped the most serious ones. At least we're all immune against diphtheria and tetanus. My older sister Frances contracted scarlet fever when she was four. I was only two, but I was sent off to hospital with her and placed in the same ward. The doctor thought that I had the disease too. It's very contagious and sometimes deadly. The tongue goes bright red and one gets a very high fever. Thankfully, I didn't contract the disease, so when this was confirmed, I was whisked out of hospital and back home. Francis recovered. We all got the measles together. We didn't have to go to school for about 10 days when that happened. Most of us got whooping cough. We were quite sick and in bed whooping for days. I got the mumps, that was also a contagious disease, but I didn't feel sick, I went climbing trees with a wool flannel bandage wrapped around my head. The bandage was considered the right treatment for bumps. We had that. Yeah, it covered the swollen glands in one's face. We had a family doctor, Dr Holland was his name. He kept a good eye on us. Several times the whole lot of us kids were down with a cold or viral infections. Dr Holland would turn up in his single-seater car. It was a Dodge Chrysler with a diggy seat in the back. He would check us all out and tell us not to sit on the grass when it was damp. However, this we did, only to be caught by him on one of, the, one of his morning Why, rounds. Why can't you sit on the grass? 
Oh, they thought it was bad for you. Oh, you, you, get, cold or you had a cold out of it. You sat in damp grass. Right. Toothache was common. I lost a couple of molars before I was 12 years of age. Dental care was not considered important then as it is today. Uh, we ate a few sweets, but our teeth decayed. A visit to the dentist was a horror experience. The needle hurt. Cocaine was used as anaesthetic and took about half an hour to take effect. The dentist would retire to his veranda for a smoke after he gave you the needle. And when he returned, the drilling would begin. The drilling machines were low revving things in those days and ground away with an awful vibration that made your head go dizzy. One had to be brave and put up with it, as well as the particles of tooth, blood and saliva going down one's throat. It was a relief to have a mouthwash and a good spit or two. When it was all over, one still had to put up with a mouth that felt fat and useless <laughs> and couldn't talk and took ages to get back to normal. Strangely enough, tooth extractions were, were welcomed. One normally arrived at the dentist at some unearthly hour in a state of excruciating pain. It was all a great relief to get the needle. On the way home, you had to keep your mouth closed. It was said you could get a chill where the tooth was extracted. The common treatment for an upset stomach was a good dose of castor oil. It was shocking stuff to take, but its effects gave a new meaning to the word evacuation. It was commonly known as the runs, although a number of other expressions were used, the worst of which my mother regarded as common. <laughs> After this took place, both on and sometimes off the toilet, one would have to starve for 24 hours. This ensures that the bug was also starved and would decide to leave anyway. My mother insisted that we all take halibut oil daily, a spoonful or a capsule before we left for school. She claimed that its high vitamin C content, content would ward off colds. It probably helped. If cuts or abrasions got infected, they were treated by applying Batesasav to the wound. Batesasav was a brown-coloured medication stick that melted using a lighted match. The salve would drip onto a piece of cloth and then apply to the wound or sore. It could even draw out splinters and cure boils, but would really burn if applied too hot. It seemed to do the trick. My mother was the barber and hairdresser in our home. She cut both the girls and the boys' hair, always short back and side for the boys. There was never a variation in haircuts for any boys. We all looked pretty much the same. Some kids whom I thought were neglected had long hair and a scraggy look, but they were the exception. My mother said when I was in first class that my hair was too thin. She decided to apply the principle to my hair that applies to grass that needs to be thickened up. Cut it very short. So she cut it very short. In fact, she removed my hair entirely, right to the bare scalp. She was considerate enough to spare me the embarrassment of turning up to school with no hair. So she cut it off at the beginning of the Christmas holidays. I yep, right, you're good to go. My mother was the barber and hairdresser in our home. 
She cut both the girls and the boys' hair. Always short back and size for the boys. There was never a variation in haircuts for any of the boys. We all looked pretty well much the same. Some kids whom I thought were neglected had long hair and a scraggy look, but they were the exception. My mother said when I was in first class that my hair was too thin. She decided to apply the principle to my hair that applies to grass that needs to be thickened up. Cut it very short. So she cut it very short. In fact, she removed my hair entirely, right to the bare scalp. She was cons she was considerate enough to spare me the embarrassment of turning up a school with no hair. So she cut it off at the beginning of the Christmas holidays. I must have been the first skinhead at holiday to holiday at Woolai, but I was never given such recognition. It earned me the nickname Bawley, <laughs> pronounced Bawley for a fair while. Maybe the theory did work. I still have a full head of hair. Maybe not for long now. The only other nickname I scored was Jungle Jim. I must have resembled at that point in time the cartoon character. Well, that happened when I was at Farrah. <laughs> um, smoking was never tolerated in our home. However, my father happened to find a pouch of tobacco and papers on the road. Not knowing who owned it, he bought it home. He decided in full view of us all to roll a cigarette, light it and smoke it. After about two puffs and a cough, he said, that's enough for 40 years, and threw the cigarette in the fire. And we were aghast. I think Mum absented herself, but it did the trick for which it was intended. I never took on smoking. The only confession I have to make is that I and two of my mates who had some money and bought a packet of Arvith. After school one day, went to the secret location, sat down to give them a puff. The problem was that after two good drawbacks, my head started spinning. I couldn't stand up for a minute or two. That finished me of any desire to smoke. I remember one afternoon after getting home from school that there was a smell of cigarette smoke in the kitchen, like it was on someone's breath. My brother was also in the kitchen and upon hearing my complaint suddenly exclaimed, Yeah, poof! And immediately he took off uh, to the laundry where he was seen gulping <laughs> volumes of tap water, hoping that the flushing operation would clean up his breath. The family next door to us were heavy smokers. Uh, there were every vice imaginable in that family. My father had many a running with a bloke. I was told one night by Dad to get up on a stool and yell out through the kitchen window, Fire! Fire! In a big voice so that the smoking neighbours could hear me. It was rather an inappropriate way to start an anti-smoking campaign and I'm sure it had no effect on the neighbours. <laughs> uh, wherever council workmen were, I was also there. I would find them when walking home from school, digging ditches or working on the road. These men fascinated me. They were so unlike my father. They were unshaven and had a rough look about them. They wore grey flannel sweatshirts and always had a dead cigarette butt hanging from their bottom lip. It seemed to be stuck there and went up and down all the time they talked. They could also swear. I learned a lot just listening to these blokes. 
I learned a swear word from them that I'd never heard before. I was only about six at the time, and I told my mother when I got home. The words started with the letter F. <laughs> my mother was so startled that she nearly fell off a sewing stool, and her rebuke was unforgettable. I, just not, I decided not to add that word to my vocabulary. There were other interesting old codgers around town. I recall this bloke who was often seen talking to councilmen on the roads. He told, he told tall stories. For me, they were fascinating. I thought they were all true. He was telling the men one day about a melon he grew that was so big, when it was open, 40 pigs came out. <laughs> well, May the 24th celebrated the English... The British Empire. We're all British loyalists then. I thought I was an Australian, but we sang British songs in community singing at school and conduct, conducted by Tom Morris. We had a British Christmas, heard British voices in the wilds, read British books, ate British food, knew something about Winston Churchill and nothing about our own Prime Minister. I knew that Empire Day was a celebration with crackers, was celebrated with crackers. I think cracker nights were banned during the war. I don't remember any during that period, but I certainly remember our first one at home. I was petrified. My brother Graham was in charge of the purchase and the lighting of the crackers. I recall hiding inside the house and watching through the shutters as big sky rockets with points on them took off with a great rush of sparks into the night sky. Some of them went a bit sideways and appeared to target neighbours but most of them fell harmlessly in backyards or out on the street. The best part of the occasion, to my mind, was the collection next day of the dead ones. At least I knew what they, that they wouldn't kill anyone. Jumping Jacks and Catherine Wheels were the next worst. Jumping Jacks could get you if you were stupid enough to be in the backyard where all the action was. Some of them kept jumping for ages, each jump starting with a big bang. The girls hated them. Catherine wheels were spectacular, but if they came off the nail on which they were spinning, they spun madly into the air with the possibility of landing down one shirt. Of course, as I grew up, I became one of the chief organisers of the night and took great delight in frightening the wits out of my sisters. Such behaviour did not make for good relationships in our home. Penny bungers were good value. When they went off, it sounded like the war hadn't finished. Tuppenny bungers were even better. Some kids blew up letterboxes with them. Some crackers were what we called fizzers. A fizzer was one that was lit but failed to go off. A lesson well learnt was that one didn't go near them until they had proven beyond all doubt that they were just a fizzer. If one ventured too early... There was a possibility of death, if not at least a badly burnt hand. Mount Vesuvius was a great cracker, aptly named because it erupted and glowed like a volcano. Roman candles were tame things, in my mind, to my mind, were not worth buying. They just fizzed a shower of sparks and didn't go off with a bang. The girls liked them. Skyrockets and other firecrackers were later banned but not before some unfortunates were either blinded or maimed in some other way. Another main event on the calendar was the annual Grafton Show. 
I remember Dad giving Graham and me four shillings each to spend. I think a bob got us into the show, so we had three bobs to spend. Graham managed to get into some side shows for fee for free, so he saw more than I did. I remember being well and truly taken in by a sideshow that claimed a spider girl was on the show in, was on the show inside. The advertising looked pretty alluring, so I paid up and went in. It cost one and sixpence. Well, it was the biggest letdown of my life. They had this girl there with face painted, looking through a fabricated web made of wire. I recall some boys asking her embarrassing questions. I left vowing never to be caught again by travelling showmen trying to make a quick quid. I immediately went to the rear of the sideshow tent to investigate the fraud, but got nipped by an Alsatian dog. <laughs> the Globe of Death was a genuine show. Two clever motorbike riders rode inside a lattice sphere, one riding in a vertical direction, the other in a horizontal direction. It amazed and frightened me. It made me feel a bit sick. I later learned that someone was killed in this act. The Jim Sharman boxing tent was an attraction to me, but it cost too much to go in. I had to be content watching the spruiking and drumming that went on outside on the rostrum. It was pretty entertaining, but I felt a bit wicked being there. <laughs> You're right. Is that enough? That's all right. What's a rostrum? Oh, the rostrum outside the boxing tent. It was a sort of a plank gangway up the top. Around about platform. 10 feet above the crowd. Oh, okay. And, you know, when people speak... I got to Stewie's working age when I was nine. Huey McPherson was a local farmer and produce merchant. He either leased or owned a few paddocks around town. He had some interest in a fruit and vegetable shop, but that was rarely seen there. But was rarely seen there. Most of his time was spent in the paddocks or hawking melons and stuff around in a horse and cart. He was a tight old bloke <laughs> and had a cleft left foot that turned inwards. One could always see where Huey had been. The boot prints he left behind were unmistakable. He travelled by horse and soggy when he went to town on church. It was a nice sprung sulky with rubber tyres. He was a Christian man and I would often be favoured with a trip home from church in his sulky. I remember the horse's rump bobbing up and down about three feet in front of the seat as we travelled along. Huey would give it a tap with the reins now and again to keep up the speed. It then became interesting. The horses outstretched Whisk tail was in my face and its farting rear end <laughs> began dropping manure in time with each stride. At this point I sat well back, held up gasp gasping for fresh air. Huey would ask me about my soul. I wasn't quite sure whether he's referring to my shoes or to the other one. No doubt he had an interest in my spiritual welfare. He engaged me to work with him, for him one Saturday planting beans with draft horse and a handheld mouldboard plough. He opened up the furrows in the paddock ready for planting. 
I remember his boot marks clearly in the furrows. He tended to be a bit unstable on his feet when ploughing. He tripped over his left boot quite a lot, which amused me. His instruction to me was to drop a couple of seeds by hand into the furrows every six inches or so. He gave me a small bag of seed and I proceeded to do as instructed. After a time, I found myself dropping about six or more seeds every three inches and rapidly running out of seed. There were many furrows left to do. To my surprise, Huey just gave me more seed. No questions asked. I finished the job and I earned one and sixpence. About two weeks later, Huey took me in his sulky to check out the beans. I rode in that sulky fearful that Huey was going to chastise me for wasting too much seed. I knew that the crop would be up, for all I could see. I kept thinking to myself, be sure your sins will find you out. <laughs> we, we arrived at the paddock. Beans were up everywhere, millions of them. And Huey thought that they looked great. He uh, congratulated me on the job and gave me a pat on the head and drove me home. What a relief. Well, Huey, for obvious reasons, couldn't run. If he had difficulty in catching a horse, he would engage someone else to do the job. I remember on one such occasion, this fellow couldn't manage to catch his horse. So Huey yelled out, let him have a shit. He said it several times. I couldn't believe my ears. I immediately went home and told my father that Mr McPherson swore. I think my father was a bit shocked and fearing that I would say something inappropriate in front of my mother, came to me later and inquired as to what word was said. And I told him, and my father's reply was, oh, that's just an old English word, and walked away. My best paid job in Grafton was assistant milkman on Saturday. Mr Eggins was the milkman. We delivered milk from the flip-top container door to door. The milk cart was horse-drawn. I enjoyed that job. I learned to jump onto and off the running board at the rear of the cart when we were going full tilt. Mr Eggins paid me well. He paid me in two shilling pieces. It looked a lot of money. Well, many a time, two of my sisters would go missing from home. Come tea time, one child and sometimes two could not be found. It wasn't because they wanted to leave home. They just wandered off. Now, one can imagine my mother, with about eight kids at the time, trying to keep track of them all. It was well nigh impossible, considering the fact that out of school hours and weekends were spent, not confined to the house, but outside on the street, as friends play, at friends' places, up trees, or in a creek. Well, this is how it was in those days. We were supposed to be all together at home for meals, for Bible reading and prayer, for school homework, if any, and for sleep. The community in which we lived, though wild and quite unruly at times, 
was nevertheless safe. If a child wandered from home, everyone was alerted at a time when family was supposed to be all together. It was at this point that the search party was sent out. Where did we find the lost kids? Um, well, they were at someone's house or waiting outside the lolly shop up the road. No dramas. There were no tears. They didn't think that they were lost. They weren't aware that a search party was on the lookout. We just brought them home and life went on as usual. Just the same, looking back, I think my mother was having a slight heart attack on these occasions. One of my sisters of preschool age had the habit of wandering off to wait on the corner of the footpath for her father to come home from school. On one occasion, she was found fast asleep on the footpath. It must have been a long day. The annual holiday was at Woolai, 40 miles from Grafton. The village of Woolai occupies a narrow spit between the ocean and the Woolai, Woolai River. Ensby's truck, a carrier of supplies from Grafton to Woolai and places along the way, was our means of transport to and from our holiday destination. Up to eight king kids, plus the occasional drunk, under the truck canopy, together with a variety of parcels, truck tyres, etc., was like sardines in a tin. It may travel over miles and miles of potholes, fords and gravel very interesting. The reward for our pain was an ice cream at Olmara, brought to us by Dad, who, together with Mum and Baby, occupied the front seat next to the driver. Well, Joe Ensby was a driver. He was born with an unfortunate orientation of his eyes. It appeared to me that he could watch both sides of the road at once. Will I, like most coastal villages in those days, was not a great tourist attraction. It was a lovely spot, very quiet, with a lot of pensioners. It had everything going for it as a holiday place. We crammed ourselves into a little cottage. It had kerosene lamps, a wood-burning stove, no electricity, and only tank water. It was owned by the Bannett family. There was no sewage system, but just a dunny pan in the, in the lavatory out the back. Dad had the unenviable job of emptying the pan. In later years, as the family grew, we rented a larger cottage owned by the Thorley family. This place had only basic facilities as well. On uh, one can imagine then, with a family of nine or ten at a time, the Dunny Pam was full to overflowing in a week. Oh. At this point in time, Dad had appointed Graham and me as chief labby, labby emptiers. The job required a hole three feet deep to be dug. This was the best part of the job. It was all soft sand. Next, the pan had to be lifted into position beside the hole. At this point, I was beginning to chuck. <laughs> Graham was able to hold his breath and, and far more able than, than I to carry out the task. The smell was outrageously bad. Each time I took a breath, it was cut off by the stench. <laughs> if one thought at this point that it couldn't get worse, then one had another thought coming. 
The next procedure involved carefully tilting the pan towards the hole and pouring out its contents. At this stage of the proceedings, assuming we were still in control of the pan, I was about to empty my, st <laughs> empty my stomach as well as the pan right into the hole. <laughs> the slopping and the splashing sent me right off. I'm sure the whole experience brought me to the nearest point of death. <laughs> worst, news, worst news was that the procedure would um, re need to be repeated the next week. It is well known that I find it difficult to change a baby's dirty nappy. Never and that, have. <laughs> and never have. Now you know why. Well, Jackson's fishing boats were well known in Woolai. They were about 40 foot long, and with the experienced fishermen on board, were able to negotiate the bar of the river at high tide to fish in the open sea. In later years, breakwaters were built, but this made the entrance worse, and fishermen had to resort to smaller vessels. There were plenty of fish in our days there. My father became quite skilled in catching flathead, using floating bottles with cord lines attached. These lines were hooked and baited. Half a dozen or bottles of, sorry, half a dozen or more bottles and lines were released to float in the channel off the river, uh, of the river near the mouth. My father kept his eye on each bottle as we rode around. When a bottle began bobbing in the water, it was a sure sign of a catch. Some catches were quite large. I remember Dad proudly displaying a flathead weighing seven pounds. Boating was not safe, not very safe, really. In the early days, we borrowed a flat-bottom rowing boat from the Ramses, but this was considered unsafe by my mother. So in later years, we were able to get a round-bottom boat considered much safer. In any case, my mother went aboard with the little children. We attached them to a leash tied to the Rolex in case they fell overboard. I don't know what we would have done if the boat sank or capsized. There were no life jackets. Tides in the river were fairly swift moving. The entrance was narrow. And I remember my father rowing with, with a couple of kids on board, battling with the oars to prevent the boat sailing at speed around and towards the mouth of the river on an outgoing tide. Frantic instructions were delivered from the shore, but not well received by Dad. His ferocious rowing with reddened face I, can, I shall never forget. Fortunately, at a point beyond the swiftest flow, he managed to bring the boat to shore, much to the relief of my mother, who, from that time on, I'm sure, gave such counsel to my father that this event was never to be repeated. Large shovel-nosed sharks were caught by Jones, the lighthouse keeper at the mouth of the river. I think it's a Jones Point there now, you know, probably named after him. Uh, he set big cord lines, and I remember him hauling them in. Some were over six foot long. His family cooked and ate the tail section of these, of these sharks. It seemed rather gross to me. Occasionally, his wife and daughters would row to the village, selling pineapples and other things out of their boat 
to the locals. The Learn to Swim campaigns were non-existent. After a very brief consultation, my father's method involved throwing one off a jetty or overboard into deep water. If one managed to swim back to the jetty or boat from which they were thrown, then one got the tick of approval to go onto a jetty. This method of learning to swim traumatised me for some time and gave me a dislike of the water. Boating and fishing became my favourite pastime and holiday. On one holiday, I was rowing my sister Elizabeth and Gerald, uh, he was her name, Gerald up the river on a pleasant afternoon. Gerald was a near neighbour in Grafton who together with his family also holidayed at Woolai. At one point of our boating journey, Elizabeth accidentally swiped a stinking fish upon Gerald's nose, much to his disgust. I remember having to put up with the indignity of a smelly face together with the fact that he was a captive in the boat. He couldn't conceal his annoyance for the rest of the journey. Gerald was such a proper boy, a good target for Elizabeth, who laughed at poor Gerald's complaints against her all the way home. I received plenty of commendation from Gerald on my rowing ability for fear on his part that he would never get home. <laughs> After this episode, Gerald no longer favoured Elizabeth, but retreated to the confines of his holiday home, never to trust again anyone by the name of King. Uh, pocket money was hard to come by, particularly on holidays. I had to devise a method of getting some lollies that I felt I needed from time to time. Upon staying at the Bennett's house one holiday, I discovered under the tank stand a large pile of empty beer bottles. I knew that kerosene was sold in beer bottles from the local store. My method involved bartering with the storekeeper. If I supplied a dozen bottles per week, and he would supply me with a packet of boiled lollies. There was no written agreement. It was entirely my own idea. The method worked well. There were over 70 bottles under the tank stand, and I got six weeks' supply of lollies. Beachworming is the sport of kings, is the sport of the kings, and a couple of others who have attached themselves through marriage or by other means. It all started with my brother Graham, who was a self-appointed catcher. I was appointed chief burlier. There was no one else to choose from. To ask Graham to burley was like asking the ship's captain to become the first officer or possibly someone of lower rank. His position was fixed, never to be downgraded. I qualified to be the chief burlier about Christmas holiday time in 1946. I was eight then. Graham was twelve. Graham learnt the art of worming from a local fisherman who always had a great supply of beach worms. There were long slimy ones and fat short ones and others in between. The challenge was to learn the art of, the art of catching them. Another challenge for me as a young burlier was to bravely bear the icy cold winds that came along occasionally in the late afternoons on Woolite Beach. My brother, being older and tougher, would soldier on if there were worms to catch, whilst I swung the burly and shivered. He did admit to me one day, but only when worms failed to appear. 
that it was possible to perish in the cold. <laughs> it was not much comfort to me. I didn't come there to be Captain Oates. Beach worms were pretty smart. One has to coach them up and onto a bait held in the fingers whilst one grabs them well below the head with the thumb and index finger of the other hand. If the worm senses that it's about to be grabbed, it will disappear in a flash. If one latches onto the worm when it is well up with its hundreds of tentacles down, then one can pull it out of the sand. If one is too slow with this process and one makes a grab when the worm begins its retreat, one will either break it, break it off or miss it altogether. A big, fat, juicy worm was always a challenge to catch, but the smaller worm was better as a whiting or brim bait. Worming is great fun. My mother got very keen on the sport. She tried in vain to catch worms, but may have had some success when, in later years, she had a pair of pliers, a special design to do, to do the job. She spent, she spent many hours fishing with beach worms as bait, standing in water about two feet deep with a dress tucked up and a line wound around the bottle. Catching a nice whiting made her day. Yep, 20 minutes. Go when you're ready. Sunday for our family was the Lord's Day. Every other day was for the worldly stuff. But Sunday was totally different. It was to be a day according to the catechism for the public and private exercise of God's worship. This meant that Sunday sport was banned. My father championed this cause in the community for many years. All sorts of play and worldly reading ceased, and one put on shoes and best clothes and went to Sunday school and church. These activities kept me busy all day Sunday. Church didn't start till 11 o'clock, but I had to be at Sunday school by 9.30. Miss Kearns, a little lady with, with rimless glasses, was my teacher for years. She was gentle and different to school teachers. I learned off by heart questions one to ten of the shorter catechism in my first year. Some years later, I learned the whole 107 questions. I also learned a number of psalms off by heart and found it easier to sing them if I was required to repeat them from memory. At the annual Sunday school picnic, I received certificates for all that I had, for all that I had achieved. I still have them. Everyone got a book with a presentation label inside, neatly filled in and signed by the superintendent. Church was a reverent place. No one talked before church or during it. Everyone sat quietly for 20 minutes or more before it started. The minister and the elders would walk in reverently from the vestry and take their places. There was no noise except the cracking sounds of the seats as the men sat. We all waited quietly for the minister to begin. If we spoke before or during the service, my father would immediately discipline us or take us outside and give us a whack. 
the minister would stand high up in the pulpit, lead, make announcements, pray and preach. All done with due reverence. We all joined together in the singing of psalms. My father had a good singing voice and presented the psalms. He pitched all the tunes using a tuning fork. He would often sing bass if the congregation could sing well enough on their own. We all remained seated when singing, and our pew would reverberate if my father was singing bass. After the sermon, we sang another psalm, and the minister with his hands raised closed with a benediction. If it was really a hot day, one's trousers or dress would stick to the pew on which one was sitting. As people rose from their seats, it sounded like the release of a lot of Velcro strips, straps. Sometimes my father would preach, leaving my mother with up to nine children occupying two front pews. If there was any misbehaviour, he would stop preaching and, to the surprise of the congregation, would give very clear direction from the pulpit as to what needed to be done. We always obeyed him. The ladies always wore hats to church. It was considered irreverent for ladies to come to church with their heads uncovered. Some hats looked a work of art with pretty lace, pins and decorative stuff. Some had mock fruit like pears, grapes, etc. attached to the top. On one occasion, a lady wearing such a hat came to church with a live frog hidden among the fruit. The frog obviously had been attracted by the hat. As this lady sat reverently in one of the front pews listening to the sermon, the frog decided to explore the hat. It moved cautiously onto the rim of the hat and hung by its front legs over the back of the lady's neck. It hung there, bulging its throat, and after having a swing or two, decided to climb back onto the rim. Some minutes later, it repeated the act. If ever there was a test of self-control for a nine-year-old kid, that was it. Thankfully, that frog did not drop onto that poor woman's neck. We all walked home from church, but on occasions I travelled by Sulky with Mr McPherson. Following lunch, we went to the local Baptist church for Sunday school at two o'clock. We sang hymns and other types of songs there and put money in the plate as Hear the Pennies Dropping was sung by all. Late Sunday afternoon was time for learning and revision of Psalms and Catechism. Search work based on Bible stories was added to my task, tasks in later years. Tea was sometimes seen as a reward for learning on Sunday. Sunday was called a day of rest, but there was certainly no sleep. It was a rest from all secular activities. My father tried to resolve in his own mind a theological problem in the early days of Grafton. The Free Church baptised babies by sprinkling, but the Baptists did not baptise babies at all. They immersed adults upon profession of faith in Christ. My father had to make a choice. Well, this, this took time, and it accounts for my attendance 
at both churches. He did, however, finally choose to be a very loyal Free Kirker. The whole nine of us were baptised in the Free Church at the same time, one by one, who we were sprinkled by the Reverend Alvin McIntosh. My father's Christian friends extended far and wide. I recall a trip to Harvard Island on the Clarence River to visit Mr Alex Cameron and his wife Mary. They were cane farmers and grew some bananas as well. They had three boys, very nice people. We came home with a bunch of bananas. Dad said to me sometime later that Mary could have been my mother. <laughs> I was a bit surprised by this statement, but it amused me as well. He obviously had a soft spot for Mary before he met my mother. I was reading a book written by one of my father's Christian friends. It was, a manus- it was in manuscript form and covered the life of the author. His name was Mr Arnold. The opening paragraph said, At 12 years of age, I was saved. I was determined after reading the book to be saved before I turned 12. I was 11 at the time. Bit of a cliffhanger. Mm. <laughs> Wonder if the Alex Cameron is a. Um... Right, Crescent Avenue, Tari, nineteen fifty to nineteen fifty seven. A voted top town in New South Wales in the fifties. Tari became the next location for my family. We now had a full complement of nine children. My father was transferred to the local high school. We rented a solid brick house belonging to the Cameron family of Mount George. Reverend M.C. Ramsey, minister of the Free Church and his wife, kindly vacated this house to allow us to move in. A new manse was built later. Our new home was typical of the period. It had a big kitchen with a fuel stove and a large table in the middle. We all sat tightly together on forms around the table for meals. Dad sat at the head head in the usual position from where he could dispense the buttered bread. He wouldn't allow us to butter our own because we might have used too much. Mum rarely sat down. She was too busy doing other things. The home had a nice dining room with an open fire and lounge room. The dining room became the homework room where quite often I think I would fall asleep and the lounge room was kept for the entertainment of visitors only. Oddly enough, there were only two bedrooms. This posed a problem as to where nine children would sleep. Fortunately, there were large verandas on two sides of the house. These were later enclosed with, enclosed with sliding glass windows that in fact never slid. However, however, this veranda space, when divided by partitions, provided bedrooms. I shared my space with, with Graham, who, to my annoyance, regularly made a frightening foghorn sound by blowing his nose all the time. Apart from this, I did like his company. 
he liked playing around with radio bits and pieces and he and I had crystal sets with which we could tune into the local radio station and listen until all hours of the night. Biscuits were rarely bought to the, for use in our home, but broken ones that were not saleable could be bought very cheaply from a local store. Graham was given the job every few weeks to collect and bring these biscuits home. They came in one of the large Arnott's tins. Upon Graham's arrival home, he would carefully sort through the tin and take out the cream biscuits. As a consequence, there were no cream biscuits to be found in the tin. Unbeknown to us, uh, to the rest of us, Graham had a month's supply hidden in his drawer. He revealed this secret to me 50 years later. Uh, Graham finished high school in 1951 and left Tari to take up engineering with the Australian Iron Steel Company, uh, AIS, in Port Kembla. I, I missed his company. Well, Dad erected a high paling fence at the rear side of the home to prevent the younger children wandering off and onto the Pacific Highway that passed our house. The downside of the new house was that were uh, that was that there were more dunny days to face. The sewerage had not been connected at this point in time. So we had to take the long walk down the back backyard to visit the lavatory. Fortunately, there was a weekly pan service. The lavvy man was a jovial character and very often on his arrival would announce for, for all to hear that he had come to collect some more honey. <laughs> the Creston Avenue home was located on a very large block, providing space enough for fowl house and run, as well as fodder for a house cow. The chooks came and went, providing eggs galore and eventually poultry meat for the table. Milk was provided by the local milko, but if the su supplies ran low, I was sent to the local Peter's Milk Factory with a billy can to get extra. The factory was only a short walk away, but sometimes it was difficult to get the milk. It depended on the men who were on the factory floor at the time. Most of the blokes would fill up the billy for me and off I would go. Well, one fellow, Mr Buckton by name, was stingy. If he was there, I was sent home with a miserable little bit of milk in the bottom of the billy. He got to be known by an unmentionable name that preceded and rhymed with his surname. First day at high school was daunting for me. I was in a new town and I knew nobody. I remember lining up for enrolment. The school had no records of my past so I was asked the uh, usual identification questions. 
and I told them that my father had been transferred to the school. I was then automatically placed in Class 1A. I further told them that I wished to take up the manual arts subjects of woodwork, metalwork and technical drawing. I was then quickly demoted to Class 1C. Classes 1A and 1B were considered to be for language students and academics only. However, I liked being in 1C despite being assigned to Siberia for most lessons. Siberia was a set of weatherboard classrooms located in the far corner of the school. My desire to be saved never left me. I wished to know this experience before I turned 12 years of age. The local Salvation Army was holding a gospel mission after school hours, so I decided to go. Lots of kids were there, so I was happy to stay and listen. An armed officer, army officer, <laughs> an army officer spoke about accepting Jesus as Saviour. I was willing to do that, so I stayed after the meeting to see someone about it. A lady spoke to me for a few minutes after the rest of the kids had left. I didn't experience a great change or anything, but I was glad I went. Time went by and I felt like I was lost in a spiritual wilderness. I went to church and even led the fellowship and appeared to be a Christian. The church minister and other Christians spoke to me, but I still wasn't sure that I was saved. I turned 17 years of age in 1955. I was working in the Commonwealth Bank at the time when Keith and Trix Longworth uh, invited me to go with them to a gospel mission at Tarley Bible College located on Port Stephens. It was the October long weekend. Keith and Trix were keen Christians and uh, obviously took an interest in my spiritual welfare. I travelled with them, squashing to the rear of their little Land Rover. It was a. Uh, it was at this mission that I came to a clear understanding of being saved. The main speaker was Roy H. Gordon, an evangelist from the Open Air Campaigners. This same man was instrumental in my father's conversion back in 1926 when he heard him preach the gospel on the streets of Sydney. I clearly remember Tali, one of the messages he gave. It was based on John's Gospel, Chapter 9, where it is recorded that Jesus restored a blind man's sight. I was deeply impressed by the sincerity of this evangelist and the truths that were spoken. I knew that weekend that I was a Christian. Our old bar became our holiday spot during the Christmas vacation. Its name derived from an old entrance to the Manning River located beyond the northern headland of Old Bar Beach. It was closed in my time despite a number of attempts to reopen it during flood time. 
There was no river, just a wide expanse of land where once there was water. Our family went down for the usual swim and sunbake on the beach each morning. My father relaxed in his director's chair reading a newspaper or a book. He was a good reader, had a broad general knowledge and regularly studied mathematics and the Greek New Testament. Uh, the latter study almost became, became an obsession uh, because of his deep concern over modern translations of the New Testament. One morning, he was reading a book about the Siamese people and he called to my attention the Siamese National Anthem. The words he read went like this, O wa ta na Siam. Now this line was repeated, according to the book, to the tune of our own British National Anthem, which seemed rather strange to me. However, my father had me singing the words loudly until I realised that I was making an ass of myself. One of the local Old Bar residents ran a herd of cows in the village. My father decided to strike a deal with this fellow and purchased a five-year-old cow named Daisy. Now, Daisy didn't think much about the deal and from that point on decided to remain in Old Bar, no matter what method was used to remove her. Graham and I were given the job of walking Daisy from Old Bar to Crescent Avenue, a distance of about 10 miles. Our instructions from Dad were to fit a halter to Daisy and leave Old Bar early on the last day of our holiday. We were to take a push bike along with us. We set off on time with Graham at the front leading with the halter. I followed behind, wheeling the bike and tapping Daisy now and again on the rear to keep her moving. The plan was to arrive in Tari at or about the same time as the rest of the family had drive, arrived by truck. The plan went awfully wrong. At midway point of our journey, Graham made an executive decision to free Daisy and allow her to have a feed in the Pampula Cemetery, where we had a rest. There was an abundance of grass there. However, Daisy, being an intelligent cow, sensed her freedom and decided to make a bolt for it in the direction of Old Bar. <laughs> Despite of our frantic attempts to catch her, she took off, trailing the haul rope behind her, and disappeared. A bushfire had recently burnt out the area, but Daisy headed into the blackened forest with Graham and me in pursuit. There was no way Daisy was going to be caught. She raced with her large udder, flopping from side to side through the bush and then onto the road, only to disappear again into the bush. We were run off our feet and outsmarted on our push bike at every point of the chase. Daisy stopped running at Old Bar Village. She was home again. Well, Graham and I, blackened with charcoal, looked like two lost and forlorn, forlorn Aborigines.
we were not going to report back to Dad for fear of being told that we were incompetent fools. It was now about 12 noon. One of the local women saw our plight and provided us with a sandwich and a drink. We gave Daisy a drink. <laughs> we gave Daisy a drink. I've got to turn the pages now. Right. Yeah, so we gave her a drink and uh, and we set off again on our journey. This time never to release the halter and hold, hold on at all costs. Our second attempt was more successful. Heading in the right direction, Graham, Daisy and I were overtaken by the truck carrying the family back to Taree. As they passed us, my father had a uh, what's happened to you idiots? <laughs> Look in his face. <laughs> it was about 5pm. <laughs> Our location was close to the cemetery <laughs> where we let her off. But the truck continued on and out of sight. We arrived home just on nightfall, weary and footsore. footsore. Daisy was fine. She shared the back block with the chooks, provided the family with milk for many years and had a calf or two along the way, courtesy of one of the local bulls. I recall the milko arriving one morning with a normal supply only to be turned away by Dad, who pointed him in the direction of the newly acquired cow. He was devastated. We had been his best customer. Graham learnt to milk Daisy, and so did I. When he left for Port Kembla, I took over the job. At times, I moved Daisy to better pastures along the river banks. I rode a bicycle each day to where she was tethered and milked her there, returning home, carrying the bucket of milk in one hand and holding on to the handlebars with the other. Well, some years later, Christmas holidays were spent at Tunkurry. My attention was drawn to the fishing trawlers based there. I remember a number of these vessels being overhauled and I became involved with one owner in particular who was rebuilding his marine diesel engine. I spent many hours assisting with cleaning and doing other menial jobs. This earned me a fishing trip the following week. I had never been to sea before, so this was a test of my seamanship. I failed miserably as we headed into the early morning light over the bar and into the ocean. The weather got worse by the minute. I braved the rising swell and crashing waves for a couple of hours. I thought it was all quite exciting until the trawler was set to drift with the currents while the men did a spot of fishing with hand lines. I had eaten a banana for breakfast and, upon inquiring of one fisherman how he was going, I delivered the banana <laughs> I, well, I delivered the banana plus whatever else I had for breakfast over his shoulder and into the sea. From that point on, 
I was finished. I lay down on the deck in the pouring rain and wished for the boat to sink. I was violently ill. I remained in that state for about two or four hours. Someone uttered the words, poor bugger, and threw a cover over me. The restarting of the engine gave me hope, some hope, of recovery. I wasn't going to die after all. As we headed home, the misty view of, of land was a welcome sight. At this point, I managed to get to my feet, prepared to enter harbour, pretending to be in excellent health and in total control. When I got home, I couldn't conceal the whole disaster. My father said that I was a bit green under the gills. I must have looked terrible. If there is a moral to this story, it is to refrain from eating bananas before going to sea. Uh, I don't think I've heard that one. There was a couple of